This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Uh, welcome to the New Books Network in Education, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Madden Gilhooly. I'm a public school teacher based on Gadigal land in so-called Sydney, Australia, and I'm your host today. Um, today, we'll be talking to Luande Lewis Forkham, Saren Stewart, and Charlene Cole, who are the editors of this fantastic text, uh, Each One Teach One. Parental Involvement and Family Engagement in Jamaica's Education System, published by the University of the West Indies Press in 2022. Welcome, Yuande, Saren, and Charlene. Thank you. Um, Thank you. Thank you. Uh, each One Teach One aims to discuss the conceptual underpinnings and frameworks for parental involvement and family engagement and examine uh, empirical data on the effects and impacts of um, parental involvement across early childhood, primary and secondary levels of education. Um, so before we get stuck into the substance of the book, I'm wondering if um, each of you can take a turn starting us off by telling us a little bit about each of yourselves, uh, your backgrounds, and, and how you came to this project. All right. So I can go first. Um, I'm Ye Wande Lewis Fulcom, and I'm a lecturer at the School of Education, UIMONA. And my areas of research are in literacy education and language education. And with that, teacher training for teachers who teach at the primary or elementary and high school secondary level um, in terms of English and, of course, literacy. I have also supervised multiple graduate students who have had an interest in parental involvement um, slash family engagement in education. And that's my link to this book. And I would like to think of my involvement in this book as corridor conversation started with Saron when she was here with us at the School of Education. Um, and me going to her asking for um, um, just her thoughts, feedback on um, the research that my students were doing. And that's how I remember us starting um, this book project. That's a good memory. So I can absolutely follow up. That's an easy segue. So my name is Dr. Saren Stewart. I'm currently an associate professor for higher education in the Department of Ed Leadership at the University of Connecticut, as well as the director for academic affairs for the UConn Hartford campus. Um, prior to that, I was a proud senior lecturer um, with both Dr. Cole as well as Dr. Lewis um, Fulcom at the School of Education at University of West Indies, as well as the deputy dean for the faculty 
Faculty of Humanities and Education. And as rightfully stated, we had offices right next door to each other when I was at the School of Education. I also taught and led a course called Applied Research in Education in rewriting the curriculum um, for some of the School of Education postgraduate programs. And one of those courses led to some applied quantitative, qualitative methodologies about current um, issues and practices that were happening throughout the Jamaica educational system. And one of those core problems that would occur every single year with our students in their different um, institutions, school of education, primary or secondary schools, was the issue of parental involvement um, in particular and how that was looked at. So it was always a core topic area. Unfortunately or fortunately, we often turn to more westernized frameworks, with we, which we have been vehemently rejecting since the 1960s or since independence in Jamaica, looking for more homegrown, more Jamaican-based, culturally responsive forms of theories and theorizing. But to date, we hadn't had anything really um, on parental involvement and family engagement. And so whenever we would collaborate and talk about this, our students would have to look towards, in particular, North America. And, and for Joyce Epstein's work, who is probably the most prolific in this space, and we started to just feel like, you know what, time is time. Time is um, We kind of need, we have enough top courses and scholars in the field. We need to be able to make a much more culturally relevant framework for, for our region, for our country, for our students. And uh, the book was birthed from our students' work and our students' leadership in this work. We just helped to facilitate the process. And we brought on, of course, Dr. Cole, who is arguably one of the most established scholars um, looking at ed psychology and involving parents, and as part of your dissertation, if I remember right, Charlene. Yep. yep. Okay. Thank you very much. So it's, it's so nice that we segue nicely into everything here. So I will start by saying, so Charlene Cole, um, Educational Psychology, University of the West Indies, Mona. I started working there in 2017, but before there, I was a classroom teacher, a teacher of the deaf, and of course, a VP. So from those experiences, I would have seen the issues with parental involvement, and I've seen where the students who did well had parents who were fully involved, parents who were there encouraging them, and of course, the school facilitated that. And as a result, I realized my interest in research started looking at parenting and aggression, parenting and this with my mentor. And so my master's project looked at parental involvement, a small subset of parental involvement. And I said, I need to get some more depth and breadth in this area. And so it started out looking at parental involvement at the early child level, grade one. And that included at the... Um, special ed needs, which include the students who are deaf and students who are blind. And so it started there based on experiences, based on interaction. And of course, the discussion, I end up teaching applied research with Dr. Stewart. And that discussion again about how do we get our students, get our, our literature from us. Our context is so different. So we need to be able to share our context and parental involvement. And so that's how we all started. Great. Thank you all so much. Um, so 
Um, what I'm going to do is, so this book has three sections, um, which encompasses nine chapters as well as an introduction and the conclusion. Um, so today we're going to go through in a sort of linear fashion and, and I'm going to ask some questions about some of the core themes that come out in each section. Um, but before we do that, um, I wanted to ask a few kind of broad questions, um, thematic questions that came up. Firstly, when reading the introduction that, three, that the three of you penned, um, uh, broadly, can you talk to us about what does studying the relationships between family and school attempt to uncover and therefore contribute to how education is done in the Jamaican context? And um, maybe you can talk to us a little bit about the gap um, in the research that you highlight in the introduction as to why your team decided it was important to address this area. Um, although, Saren, you've you've touched on it a little bit there as well. Okay, I will start and then others will continue. So as we started this research, we realized one of the gaps that existed. So we know about Epstein's mother, we know about Uber Demsel Sanders mother. But is Jamaica parent, you know, we approach parent in the same way as what those models are? And based on our context, it's a bit different. How are Jamaican parents involved? What are the things that they do to be involved? And so it's very important that we choose to look at Jamaican context and how do we explain parental involvement and parental engagement? We want to give our own story. Right. And um, to add to that, in terms of the gap in the research, um, there, so, so Saron mentioned it, that we have been using, our students were using um, Epstein's model, which is fantastic, and them for Hoover Dempsey, sorry. Um, but we also wanted something homegrown and um, which we deal with in the first chapter, kind of theoretical chapter. But going back, there is research in Jamaica on parenting, but that focused broadly on uh, um, parenting and family life and not so much on education. And so you have the work of Heather Ricketts, Patricia Rupp, Anderson, uh, Maureen Sams Vaughan, but uh, none of these really focused on what is happening at the school level in a specific way. And so this research brought that uh, um, education lens to what does parenting or family involvement, family engagement look like in the Jamaican classrooms at different levels, which I think is um, and from teacher's perspective, because many of our graduate students were teachers in the field and felt anecdotally, you know, I noticed that uh, my students who do well, their parents, I see them, I speak with them, they're around, um, but the students who are not doing well, I'm not seeing their parents or their family members. And so I think over the years, the students were curious and, um, as, as Saren said, we kind of built on that curiosity and helped them to hone, you know, their chapters and to create this, this book. So the gap that we're filling is not just um, creating our own model and, and making it Jamaican, but also giving it that education lens from the research that, you know, had already started in the Caribbean, in Jamaica. Okay. Um, thanks so much. So can you, um, explain, um, just 
sort of briefly for, for those of us who um, haven't worked um, within the Jamaican education system, um, just explaining sort of the funding model of, of what proportion of students in early primary, secondary attend private school, schools versus state schools or, or what that difference looks like, um, or what constitutes a state school in, in the Jamaican context. Okay, thanks. Oh, you want me to start? Yeah. Okay, so I will start. The young and they can come in. So in Jamaica, the state schools are the ones that are government operated. We have more of those at all levels, the primary, the and the secondary. You may we may have a bit more of the this the private ones at the pre pre preschool level. So we have some other schools that are government funded at the preschool level and some private ones. But some of the private ones at the preschool level, there is then the government normally pays a trained teacher at those institutions. Overall, from the primary to the secondary level, we tend to have, well, uh, maybe ratio two to, two to one, a lot more, more um, government funded. And when the government speak about government funded, the government pays salary, takes care of the school, everything. So yeah, you can continue, you can add to that. You want if you, yeah. Right. So in the government school run schools, um, there is um, the government pays um, per student. Um, and the there's this what you call this auxiliary fee. So it's not tuition, but it's um, like a contribution to the operation of the school. For the private schools, the private schools pay, in a sense, the full cost of what it would take to educate a child, plus the extracurricular. But I'm going to give you some figures so that you can understand it. These are the ones that I got. Um, I couldn't get any more recent figures, but these are from 2017. But I think it's generally um, applicable to now 2023. But at one point in time, there was a grade four literacy test that was um, administered nationally. And they would give reports, the Ministry of Education. And in one of their reports, they had 232 private schools with 4,371 students who took that exam, that grade four literacy test, compared with 765 public schools, and this is at the primary level or elementary level, with 33,680 students. So as you can see, the bulk of Jamaican students go to public schools. And um, the, the fees are, I mean, are quite high for the private schools. Um, versus, and they're smaller in terms of student-teacher ratio, whereas in the public schools, um, the fee is much less, or the auxiliary contribution is much less, and um, but the schools are larger. Um, so you're talking about um, schools, in the private schools, you might have a class of 10, 12, 15, maybe up to 25, and if it's up to 25, they might have an assistant teacher versus in the private primary elementary school. Um, sorry, that was the private 
elementary school, but in the public system, you might have one teacher to maybe 35 students. Um, so yes, the bulk of our students go to public schools, but um, so generally, generally, there is a, um, you know, the private schools, those students tend to score better on national exams versus the public schools. However, not all public schools um, are the same. There are some who do really well, their students, um, and then some who are not doing as well. Yeah, and just to continue within well and not well. So within the public schools, you have schools located in different locations. Based on the location too, it also determines the teachers you attract. And the teachers will go there, may, you may not get the teachers. For example, a school located in, a, located in a rural area may not get the staff complement that it requires, which affects um, teaching and learning. A school located in an inner city environment where crime and violence is pretty high, you may not attract the staff that you want. And so it will affect performance on a whole. So as against a prep school, the private school, they tend to be in location where things are normally safe there yeah right and then that's at the elementary at the secondary or high school level and you had asked about it there are um traditional and non-traditional schools and i know um saren has written about it um but uh, the traditional schools tend to perform better um they have a longer history of academic excellence um and sports excellence as well. And they have a very strong, um, especially the, the all boys um, high school, they have a strong um, PTA, strong um, old boys association. And that PTA, you know, you know, they have the resources versus the non-traditional high schools. Um, they are not as well resourced and they tend not to do as well, but the government has been over the years been trying to improve the non-traditional um, high schools and to get the schools, those non-traditional schools to a level where actually the children want to go to those schools because what happens is, is that um, because the trad traditional high schools do well academically, they attract the um, stronger teachers, um and of course these, these are generalizations but they attract but it's it's a general trend they attract stronger teachers they do well academically sports wise we have these exit exams at the elementary level at grade six um and many children want to go to these um traditional schools and of course it becomes very competitive you have to get um, 97%, 98, 99, almost a hundred, you know, to go to a non-traditional, um, school. And, um, then what you have is the reverse happening where those students who don't do so well on the exams, um, when have PEP, we call it primary exit profile. Um, so they might be scoring below 50%. They tend to go to some of the non-traditional high schools. And of course, you know, if you have a school that has predominantly students who are getting 50 and below, 
you can see the challenges with that versus schools and high school traditional as getting students with, you know, 90 and above average on their tests. So that's part of the 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 challenge that we have um, in the Jamaican education system. But I'm going to wrap up by saying um, that is not to say that you have non-traditional schools who who um, aren't doing well. There are some who are doing really well and changing their their profile. Great. Thanks so much for that and giving us um, some strong foundations for understanding where the conversation is going to take us. Um, what I might do now is we might start to talk a little bit about section one. And I was hoping that you'd first talk a little bit more about um, the sec section one's overarching attempt to extend global frameworks to create a more Caribbeanized model that better reflects the family structures and challenges and strengths of families and communities that are supporting students um, in Jamaica. Um, do you want to talk a little bit more about um, the framework that you're attempting to to build? Um, sure, I'll I'll go. Um, so there are two things, two big concepts that we um toyed with, struggled through. Um, and this is based largely on the work of um Keon Morgan, with whom I wrote um that first chapter. Um, building that theoretical framework. And it's really coming out of um, Dr. Morgan's um, doctoral studies, where she looks at um, family engagement, but from a US perspective, her experience in the US. And, but she has a Jamaican background. And so she and I collaborated on that chapter and um, used this model, um, this uh, um, family engagement um, framework um, to, to, to look at how is it that we can do two things. One is um, looking at how do you shift the narrative from looking at only parents, parental involvement to family, considering that in the Caribbean, many children, most children are not only taken care of or cared for by their parent, a parent, but maybe a grandparent, a grandmother, grandfather, an aunt, uncle, older sibling. So we wanted to honor that, to move from the whole idea of a nuclear family to a broader um, expanded, extended family setting. And then the second thing is involvement. We wanted to um, move away from involvement, which for her was more programmatic. So here are these programs. And if you attend them, you're a good parent. And broaden that term to involve engagement, which is that looks at um, both home it is that family members support their children. What are the internal to the home and the school and the external of the home and the school? Um, those factors that can influence that family support and honoring the ways in which different types of families support 
um, their children in terms of their academics. Um, so um, looking at different values that people might have and trying to, to honor that. So one more thing I wanted to say about um, the framework, which is one of the things that um, grabbed my attention is her focus on post-secondary and workforce readiness. That uh, when she first introduced it to me, I was like, wow, when I, you know, in thinking about my own career, you always hear, you heard of parental involvement and it kind of stopped at high school. <laughs> and this framework goes beyond and says, as human beings, we are lifelong learners. So your involvement, your engagement with your child is not just at the end of the high school graduation, but goes beyond to undergrad, graduates even, because as she, you know, I was having a discussion with her and um, Dr. Morgan pointed out that, you know, in the Jamaican setting, because of the economy, um, people don't readily leave the home. So they're at, you know, the family home for an extended period and they still do, um, value that type of support that the different older family members give them. And then the workforce readiness is so key and, and, and appropriate, timely now, because our government is focusing on certain goals for 2030, you know, that we want to achieve as a nation. And um, a big part of that is workforce readiness. So how can you make a link between school and work and make it clear to 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 the students to children um so i think those are features that i really appreciated others too but that i really appreciated about um um this model yeah fantastic so in addition, I think looking back at the frameworks we are looking at for example in our jamaican context looking at just how the home and the school relate with each other so for example, non-traditionalized schools, what are the things that parents need to do to be more engaged? What are the things that the schools need to do to get the parents more engaged? And as um, the one they mentioned earlier about the differences and disparity between what happens at the upgraded high school compared to the traditionalized school. So they spoke, they, the authors here spoke to the things that parents do to get their children to be successful. A big part of this would be communication. How is it that we communicate with some of the parents? And we're looking at the, the reality of some Jamaican parents, especially those who children may end up, not all of them may go to an upgraded high school. And some of the issues are they work every day. They don't have a standard job where they have a nine to five where they can, some of, some of them would, may, would have a job. So how do we communicate with them? So they're finding, ingenious ways to communicate with their parents so they can be involved. So what can we do within the school to be able to engage our parents for them to be involved? And they mentioned a few things and I've noticed, I think across, as us as, as academic staff, we're using WhatsApp. And that was a part of this model where the best way to get your parents is through that. And I'll just leave the rest for Saran to add. Thanks. <laughs> I jumped in a little bit late, so there'll be editing to this part of the audio. Just remind me which question on is on, please. <laughs> yeah, we're just talking about um, section one, and we're just doing a bit of an overview about um, 
um, you know, talking about a more Caribbeanized model that better reflects the family structures and challenges and strengths of families in Jamaica. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. Um, I think that the the need, and I, I don't want to duplicate anything that was just said because I was, you know, trying to make sure I wasn't missing another exit um, while driving, is that... Um, the familial structure within Jamaica is a precarious one. You will have the phenomena of, I don't know if you're familiar with it, Madden, but um, of the barrel children, mm-hmm. which is uh, very culturally relevant in today's world um, within our context for how the significant migration, brain drain, um, et cetera, mm-hmm for upward social mobility has caused where there are generations of children that were raised by a barrel. And the the impetus on that is being said that those children are either raised by other guardians, other people in the community, um, other older siblings, um, relatives, et cetera. So expanding this framework from where we received it from the North American context to make it culturally relevant is to encompass and engage all the ways the definition of family is expansive in our context right and what um, family means family used to mean um in particular that the community raises a child given the various volatilities that our countries have been exposed to mostly due to socioeconomic strife corruption violence etc climate uh, we have seen where there is a shift from the community raising a child, and um, but we still have the legacy of the barrel-raised children. And so the noting what exactly family is within our context was really important, being able to expand that definition beyond just the nebulous um, parents in a household to be much more that this is more guardian-led Um was really important. And then of course, the use of language within these frameworks were very important. Um, from a quantitative side of things, we really had to look at how some of these constructs were not valid within our context for how these were written. And so we had to retest and pilot these constructs. And then when we looked at it again, we really had to think through uh, when we are communicating across our context, what kind of language are we using, right? So that we're not becoming exclusionary, but really inclusive. And this is something that I always default to Dr. Lewis Fulcom on and her work or with, in particular, the Jamaican language unit and really prefacing um, how we need to recognize the utility of language as we develop and incorporate and adapt culturally relevant frameworks to our context. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for that. And I I think that probably one of my favorite parts about the book was um, this really interesting, you know, this reframing of family engagement as a more grounded in communal structures and the dialectical relationship that's kind of highlighted there through this idea of, um, you know, cradle to, you know, uh, grave, you know, thinking about education all the way through, right? There's a relationship that's happening that's, um, I did think I was wondering if whether or not that was maybe 
indirectly um, talking to um, this concept of brain drain and how, um, you know, being in Jamaica, that's a conversation, particularly around education that is happening all the time. Um, so thinking about expanding that and how we're engaging, you know, as teachers, um, you know, with wider communities and not just a particular person, um, um, I think is a really invaluable thing and something that we could do well to um, be reflecting in um, more westernized, um, you know, structures of, of, of pedagogy and how we're thinking about that. So I really, that was one of my favorite contributions of the text. So thank you so much for that. Um, I wanted to ask about, so in the third paper in section one, um, it looks at um, Jamaican student success in mathematics education, in which um, the authors of that chapter uh, propose a family involvement uh, framework based on Epstein's work, um, but model it specifically on the Jamaican context. And um, math education is an area of interest in, in most parts of the world. Um, um, but what can we learn about um, the importance of adapting frameworks to better fit the local context? And what I really want to pick up on is something that you just highlighted, Saren, um, and that's um, around language um, when attempting to bring families into the fold of school community, um, you know, because for instance, the authors discuss the positive impact of using Jamaican Creole or Patois for uh, their framework and how important that is for bringing family family into the fold. So do you want to talk on that? Yeah, I'll start and then I'll default to my expert. Seriously, I call her from here often to help me with these different papers I'll write that want the proper spelling for or Jamaican Creole. I think that work is not lost on me and I'm always humbled by it. With Dr. Lewis Fulcom, she knows this. Uh, I pre, you know, so I'll definitely make her add to this. I'll start us off by saying that when I think within that chapter, but more largely making sure that we were re-looking at the framework. So it was one thing for our students, they would get all of these items and then they were asked to make pilot them, right? And then the assumption is that our communities speak standard academic English. I always tell people academic English is a different type of English. And we were essentially engaging communities where academic English is not the first language. In fact, you know, Dr. Fulcom Lewis will definitely tell you it's not the first language in most of our schools and in majority of our Jamaican households. But yet we were giving them this pileup that's written in academic English to then pretend that they assume. So half of the time I knew when I was running the pilot with our students, they were like, boy, doc, I don't know how to do this because half of them don't understand. I said, well, let them understand, communicate, even though they have the items to complete, communicate, translate it for them. Do not assume that the persons who are completing these surveys understand how to read this, how we are intending them to read it, because language is finicky in that way, right? So one of the first things that they were doing were these qualitative observations of how quantitatively they had to translate how um, their participants were even understanding each question. And so what was clicking for them was much more than a quantitative pilot. It was almost this re-rendering of these six elements of parental involvement. And they had to figure out, for example, yard instead of community. And then they had to really say, 
And then for us as the lecturers, we had to empower our students to recognize that this is valid. This is research. Our language matters. Who we are and how we disseminate research is ethical practices. We should not be giving them academic English and then make them fill out because they think them understand. It is your responsibility to translate each item. So that was really a great teaching moment. And I think what it allowed them to do, what we asked them to really think through and process as they were helping us to co-author these chapters was the lessons learned. Not what we prescriptively taught you to do. What were the lessons learned when you were in the field collecting the data? What did you have to do? Think about that. And how was the language have to be turned? And they said they never had to think about it in that way. They just talk regular, how they communicate with their students and how they communicate with their parents and their guardians. So we actually said to them, no, you need to pay attention to that. You need to take back those memos, notes, and you, that is your data. That along with all of your beautiful statistics and analysis and codes, that's your data. And I think from there, you see in some of the chapters, these reconfigurations of parental involvement in our own terms and how we were navigating those, you know, ancestral standard colonial tensions <laughs> with doing this. But I'll let uh, Yawande continue because she's really great at um, translating this work a lot better too. All right, so um, yeah, I endorse what Sound said. And um, it's interesting that you picked uh, Madden this chapter because I don't know if editors are, are not supposed to have favorite chapters, but this was um, one of, um, yeah, one of my favorite chapters because um, math is such a love-hate subject for so many, not only in Jamaica, just internationally. And yet, you know, language is what we is is the, we use language, the language that we speak to communicate that math in the classroom. And in Jamaica, as as San said, we have these two languages, Jamaican Creole, which is the heart language of many Jamaicans, you know, as well as English. But it's not necessarily the heart English. Jamaican English is not necessarily the heart language. And what is so beautiful about this, the two things that are really beautiful about this chapter is one, they're looking at math, not from the angle of the, the, the numbers that you know, but if you check the, the, um, the, not the title, but the subtitle, changing mindsets, conversations and perceptions, because a lot of math is about the mindset, you know. <laughs> and the conversations, how do we speak about it? And I loved how in this chapter they used um, Epstein's model and they, and in a sense, which goes to our model, looking at internal and external factors. So guess what? One of the things using the, the mother tongue is talk to the teacher, have a conversation with the teacher about math. And by using talk to the teacher, the parent instinctively would understand exactly what that means, you know? Um, and so the use of um, the home language in helping to change the mindset of the parents and therefore the children 
in math is is critical. So it it goes to um the social and emotional element of learning, which is which is key um, in learning math and other subjects as well. So, you know, the other category was help the picnic in the yard, you know? So support the child at home. And then the whole idea, bringing in what Charlene said, the WhatsApping, there were WhatsApping different messages to help support the social and emotional learning of math. So yeah, this one was, really um a, a powerful chapter and just to just add not long is the importance of the parent appreciating school because the teacher understands me math is a fear as mentioned is a love-hate subject but if i can tell my parents how to approach it or to work with my child it's easier for the teacher and for the student. So once we understand the context of our parents, we are able to work with them. But if we separate ourselves from their reality, it's going to be a challenge. Yeah. Yeah, Very absolutely. true. I think the only thing I'll add is that, I don't know if it's in the name and you might know this, Madam, we are a proud culture. We're proud to our fault, to be honest with you. And if you can't, a parent not going to tell you that they don't understand, you know, they... <laughs> <laughs> they're going to be like, you know, to ask somebody else. So if a, if a teacher is able to really communicate at the level of the parent, right, it be, or the guardian, it's such it's a much more powerful exchange and a support mechanism for that student's well-being overall. But it is to the point where to understand the humility because a parent oftentimes will not ask for help, Right. Um, very, very, very proud um, people. And as a result of that, the teachers within this text really understood that call and was able to really bridge how exactly should this be done. And language helps to bridge that relationship. It is an access pipeline way rather than a barrier. And that's really important, I think, with any subject matter, but in particular mathematics. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for that really rich analysis um, for you all jumping in on that. Um, it was one of my favorite chapters, too. Um, <laughs> um, and I think that that is because as well, um, there is a very specific um, uh, particularity to, to what you're speaking about. And there's also a universality um, to that as well. Um, you know, uh, across uh, different lands, um, you know, there there are different communities that we're working with that we need to consider how important language is, as you're saying, as an access point. Um, language is also how we reproduce culture and uh, social infrastructures, right? So when we uh, use language to um, bring people in um, rather than push people out um, and to normalize the use of the language that our communities use, I think is really important for ensuring that our school is a community, is, is truly a community school. Um, I want to jump into section two and ask about um, relationships firstly. Um, so the building of reciprocal relationships between school staff, particularly teachers, um, 
with parents and, and, and family is crucial for any academic achievement of, of students, um, as this body of research tells us. However, the teacher and family relationships are particularly crucial for supporting the needs of students with disability. Um, and I'm interested in hearing about what your research can tell us about supporting students with disability in Jamaica by supporting their parents, uh, families and communities. Um, maybe particularly interested in hearing about uh, you know, the use of IEPs uh, or education, uh, individual education plans in the Jamaican context? Okay, so in Jamaica, for one, we have generally limited research on special education. That's the first thing. So we tend not to focus much on special. And families who have students with special needs, they have, they require more attention. They require more assistance than the student who attend regular school. And so the collaboration between the different stakeholders, the parent, the, the school leaders, the teachers, those are critical for those children's success. And if we can reach the parents, because most times, based on I've been working with special ed for a while, most times the parents themselves, they don't have the knowledge and sometimes some of them don't even know how to get that knowledge. And if no one provides that knowledge, they are going to be there, don't know what to do. So they need to have advocates for them. Now, as we think about special needs and parents, it's important to empower them because if we don't, it's difficult to help because that empowering is very, very important, getting them involved. And the IEP is one method, one effective way of getting that done. So with the IEP, the parents are a part of that process. The parents know exactly what are the challenges my child has or my children have. How am I going to meet those needs with the help of the teacher and the school? So when that meeting is held, when that child is assessed, depending on the needs of those children, when that meeting is, is held, they discuss exactly what is it that I want for my child? What is that the school sees the problem with your child? And based on that, that IP is developed. And when the parent is involved in the process, the parent knows exactly what to do when the parent goes home. And so that collaboration between the school and the teacher, the interaction, so you get more, what's the word? Um, connection between the school and the home. And so the child is more likely to develop and grow when that involvement is in place. Great. Thank you so much. So we we know from large bodies of research that parental support and involvement in early development, those first sort of five years, makes a huge difference, not only in the attachment and socio-emotional development, but also makes a difference, <clears throat> makes a difference in academic success. Um, and, and that um, gaps in achievement can persist into students' primary years as well. So um, what was really interesting was the recommendations that came out of your research in um, Chapter 6 um, for schools to support parents of primary school students as they transition between grades um, to provide parents with learning opportunities to feel uh, empowered by, by being provided with practical approaches of how, how to support their child um, at each developmental stage. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about um, how you came to that particular recommendation? Okay, so 
I will begin and then others will join. So within our Jamaican system, our curriculum is a spiral curriculum. So they start at grade one, they keep adding and adding. So, so they, at the end of the day, would have mastered all the skills. So what happens in our system, a parent may, at grade one, may be very involved because they are afraid of what is happening at grade one. They can help and they can do everything with their child. They can volunteer and they're able to help them at home. But as the children move to other classes, move to a higher grade, the parents sometimes don't know to help because they don't they don't have the knowledge level. So let's say grade three, grade four, where the maths, the mathematics are the language that becomes more complicated for the parent. And so they may not be as involved as they should or they want to be. So what schools can do, so that recommendation is providing, for example, training for parents to empower them. So you build that sense of confidence in them for them to be able to help their children. So instead of shying away from helping with the math homework, instead of shying away from helping the other, other subjects, as they, as they transition to the, different, to the other grades, schools provide support for the parents so they're able, they're able to help them at the different level where they transition. Right. So this, this is where workshops certainly can help. Um, having workshops for parents to help them to understand exactly what is going on. Um, because just changing hats as a parent, sometimes, um, you know, concepts are taught, which were taught differently from how you knew it when you went to school. And um, it, it really is helpful um, to diffuse that um sometimes um argument between you and your child as you are helping them with their homework it can help to diffuse that um you know dispute and empower the parent as well so that the parent knows how you know best to support you're not going to do the homework but at least you have an you have a sense of what's going on and can point them in in the right direction um, or get help um, because of those workshops. So it's more information workshops that are very helpful, I find. Yes, and before Sarah would come in, if she is coming in. So we think about at the de developmental level of each child. So as they get older, they develop, more, they develop more autonomy. And with the more autonomy that they develop, something they don't want the parents to help, as what um, Yawande said. And the other thing is they say, teacher knows best. So they, they don't want the parent involvement at that point. But the parent still need to realize that, yes, the teacher knows best, but I have to support my child. Depend doesn't matter the, the level of autonomy, autonomy the child may have, is what do I do? Or do I facilitate that growth, that development that that child needs? The, the, training, the training activities at schools benefit a lot. I remember one of my interviews I did, the principal said she has community classes with her, te with her teachers and one of them, end up attending high, um, teacher's college after that because of the training for her to help her child. That's a great story. Um, thank you for sharing that, Annika. Um, I, I did find this, this part of the chapter really interesting, you know, the idea of running workshops as another opportunity to reach out and build um, collaborative relationships with parents um, and community members, I think is a really... Um, uh, could be um, quite helpful um, 
you know, even at high school, you know, I teach high school. So I think that would be a really beneficial thing. I think a lot of parents, particularly with high school, um, they have their own relationships um, with school and some of those relationships, as we know, um, memory is based in emotion. And so lots of parents have a, a relationship with school that might not be positive. So their interactions with school um, and with the institution of education are not always positive. So creating things, um, you know, creating collaborative moments um, like these kinds of workshops where, um, you know, knowledge is kind of shared. Um, and I'm sure that it would be a great way for, for teachers to also build their knowledge around community and, and build stronger relationships with parents, which makes... Um, rapport building with students so much um, easier, especially when they're being cheeky. Um, so um, did you want to jump on to that question? Okay. Um, so we'll, I wanted to ask about um, in section three, the chapter, uh, chapter eight, um, which looks at parental involvement in rural high schools in Jamaica. Um, I, uh, wasn't able to go into um, the school itself, but um, uh, I was um, in Jamaica earlier this year and um, visited Frankfield um, and um, uh, learned a little bit about the Edward Allen School out there and their really terrific um, education, um, as well as their very terrific um, uh, track team, um, which is obviously, you know, equally as important. Um and can you talk to us a little bit about um, some of the specific considerations that relate to supporting parents whose children attend rural schools as opposed to urban schools? Yeah, I can start us off. So this one was um, led by uh, one of our um, former students who was a principal at the time um, of the school, which I think is very um, a unique perspective from being a teacher versus a principal, was a former teacher, of course, for a number of years and has really devoted her work to educational leadership now in the most recent iterations. And the emphasis about this work was actually the project that she took on for her entire school, right? Recognizing that the polarizing economic gaps that are between um, urban parents and guardians versus um, rural parents and guardians is strife. And what that really signals, for example, was like one of the parents is one of the vendors outside of the school selling um, you know, various snacks and products and things like that, right? Um, and so one of the key determinants in their findings, which I thought was really interesting, which is really now, this was pre-COVID, so we can talk about also post-COVID effects and how difficult that has been, right? Was where work, the capacity for a parent to get involved based on one of the biggest barriers was the, the work um, working hours, right? And what that meant for that being one of the very strong barriers, significant barriers to parental involvement, which I think is similar, but exacerbated in the rural context, given the type of seasonal work that often happens 
which is farming, um, you know, agriculture overall, and then just precarious, right? So they have high peak seasons that they must be available. And there is, that's the difference between food on the table for months versus food on the table, no food on the table for months as well. So there is a clear distinction. And as a result, you recognize that there is a divide in that respect. And so I think for our lead author on this chapter, it was very clear that they had to really figure out an alternative mechanism to engage parents and try to reach them on their level, which was to have small events, like practic practical events with food, for example, available, right? how they use community centers to transmit knowledge because not everybody had a phone. So even communication is a real significant barrier. So not everyone has access to a reliable device or WhatsApp, but they would use community-based centers to disseminate core information. So they would print documents, right? Print information, print letters, and then they would bring them um, to those community centers for parents to pick up and stuff like that. So that was one of the core areas that I thought that was differential. We're going to be interrupted for a minute because I have a young child walking in. So I'm going to pass it over to one of my co-editors. Right. So what was also interesting in this study is that, um, one, it's in a rural school. And oftentimes our research is focused on schools within the city, especially Kingston and St. Andrews. So this was different and refreshing. Um the second thing is that whereas the parents felt satisfied about their level of involvement, they were not so satisfied with the school's level of involvement, which uh, goes and, and goes to show how sometimes you as the parent, you as the school, you can be thinking, yes, I'm do we have P regular PTAs, we do this, do that. But that's not addressing the needs of the parents. So um, this was very insightful, I'm sure, to the principal and hopefully to others who read this, this chapter, that sometimes we have to reflect and, and, and even carry out even informal surveys to see, are we meeting your needs, you know, uh, which goes back to the movement from involvement to engagement, because that engagement is more collaborative. So asking, am I am I really meeting your needs? You know, do you need some other, um, you know, do we need to relate to each other's school and the parent or family in a different way? And how can we facilitate that? And during something important to note is one of the significant variables was going to be um, work at home, the students working. So what's not really stated explicitly, which was going back to your question, if this particular school is situated in one of our agricultural parishes in particular that relies heavily on farming, uh, more than fisheries, but really farming. And as a result, everyone in the family is required to work the farm during the high peak seasons for picking, planting, et cetera. And so what that also led to was that they are absolutely learning very critical agricultural skills, but it was taken away. So it's a different form of learning at home, which was one of those pieces where um, 
the the parents are highly involved in the home, but you also find that students were working outside of school in order to help provide for the home as well. So it took away from overall schooling, which isn't properly captured, but is one of those unique differences between urban versus rural life and depending on the type of parish and agricultural needs. Um, that you will find that students will have to take off time in order to, you know, um, help their help their families in that period. Yeah. And just to add, I'm just going back to this chapter. I'm just thinking of our, our curriculum is designed in Jamaica. So we design a curriculum for everybody, but then sometimes we fail to see the differences that may exist in the different um, communities, different parishes. And so this is what we are required to do. But then the, 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 the reality within our environment is different. And so as educators, it, because it was kind of, wow, I didn't know this existed. We have to now make adjustments to how we approach teaching and learning for our students. Because as I said, the, the parents weren't satisfied with all the teachers. So a parent from a rural community expect more or maybe something else from a teacher because what happened? Because of where they are, the connection they have, as against an urban parent who may have everything readily available. So the context is so different. So we have to know, know to under, how to work with this group and know to really get the parents more in, involved and engaged. Yeah, thank you all so much. So I want to ask about um, some of the key lines of inquiry that you know, putting this text together has left um, you with um, and and what you think should be front and centre of the research agenda as it relates to better serving the Jamaican education system and learning in Jamaica. I can start us off and then pass it on to my co-editors. So this book was written before COVID and I think that's important to name because I do believe strongly that a lot of the practices and the outcomes of the text came to fruition heavily during COVID. When in Jamaica, um, uh, Madden or region, including Latin America and the Caribbean, according to UNESCO, was disproportionately affected by the magnitude of the number of clo month closures. We had one of the highest in the world. You're talking, um, the I think it was over 24 months of closures, sustained closures and isolation. And what we found in the immediate sense, this is pre-vaccine, is that our teachers or schools being under mandated closures had to figure out how to communicate with the parents, which, which as we're seeing right after COVID or you know, I say right after there was a lingering legacy of it, it has been and remains very difficult to account for every child back in a seat. Um, and for us in our country, if you look back at like Millennium Development Goals and some of the mandates for universal primary education, we achieved that. By 2000, we had achieved it. We were hitting all our markers for the MDG. We were on target for the SDG Sustainable Development Goals. COVID hit. And for a while, we have been and were unable to account for over 40,000 of our students in schools. And what you're seeing is that we lagged pre 
Millennium Development Goal numbers, just to figure out, are we even achieving universal primary access to education where we can account for every child? And of course, if you look to the rural schools accounting, that's much more disproportionate. So I think the ways in which this book becomes even an impetus was something that we couldn't even foresee, which was during a catastrophic pandemic where more than ever, the parents became the teachers, the principals, the caregivers, without the capacity to necessarily do so. And uh, we are still reeling from that. There is, of course, very well known now the lost learning effects. And I think we have spoken a lot about, in hindsight, what we would have done, right, if we knew. And some of the recommendations absolutely have become that how can what we learned as some of the outcomes from these chapters mitigate against lost learning to help our parents, to help our students recognize still the value of the education and how they are instrumental in bridging these years of lost learning not just the academic learning we're talking the social emotional development learning how a child <laughs> greets you how a child reacts to social problems and unfortunately we were one of the hardest hit countries with the least resources so it's that is um that is something that i know has been getting a lot of momentum as you heard with our 2030 um kind of agenda and trying to figure out what exactly needs to happen in the interim. And then the last thing I'll mention is um, we do have a couple of chapters on early childhood, but there, there needs to be a zoned in effect. The amount of data that we know now in the Western world, especially around Western research with regards to the effects of the birth through eight or pre-birth to eight, we are nowhere close to where we need to be. And we do have Dr. Zoya Kincaid-Clark, who's one of our very profound um, early childhood um, researchers in the region period. And her work has been longstanding in providing this strong impetus that where most of our funding needs to go is to early childhood. We have missed significant critical um, areas in our children's development by the stratification of our basic schools versus early childhood versus, you know, just the various levels of lack of regulatory approaches um, to and the valuing of early childhood has really affected us significantly within our education system. So, so just to continue, so Saron spoke to early childhood, the importance of ensuring that we are they are fully prepared for school. I am going to be looking at you now the, as the whole aspect, what COVID did was showing the differences in attainment for students who have special needs. So a student who normally requires that interaction at school doesn't have that anymore. The parent at home doesn't know the language. For example, a child who is deaf, the parent doesn't know the sign language. So there's an issue with communication. So learning loss, significant learning loss. A child who is, who is visually impaired. Yes, the child may be, able to, may be able to speak, but the child needs to read using Braille. No one knows, no one knows how to help. So we have the different disabilities within the different persons with disabilities in the home. The parents, I've met parents who said, miss, I don't know what else to do. 
I am stressed and that 24 months of no school, basically there being the parent, it was challenging for some parents who have children with disabilities. And so, yes, we have the disability at being passed finally, but are we having the infrastructure? So we have, we have an inclusive education system in Jamaica. However, the ones who are severely affected, they don't, they don't get that opportunity to really explore and all of that. And no, the parents have to deal with all of that, plus their own life experiences. So they were under stress themselves, plus the stress of the child, the child with a disability, plus other stress. So it was challenging for parents to cope during this time. It was challenging before the COVID and no after COVID, no during COVID. So they are now just recovering. And now we're realizing that we need to do further intervention, working with parents in dealing with children with special needs. And I would like to add two things. Um, one, um, I think honoring the voices of our parents is important. Um, that's where engagement and collaboration come, you know, that comes in. Um, in a number of the chapters, you know, it 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 you know, we demonstrate that um, schools have to rethink <laughs> how is it that they conceptualize and put into practice um, involving their parents and shift from that a programmatic approach to engaging them and really engaging the voices of working class parents. Um, that in in that that's key because those parents are often disenfranchised. That's one. And then two, I think going forward, when I, you know, reviewed the book, I realized, um, you know, looking at it again over time, I realized, wow, you know what's missing? The family literacy <laughs> chapter. And that's so where I'd, I'd like to go in terms of um, further research in this area, looking at family, family literacy practices, especially given the two languages of Jamaican Creole and Jamaican English. Great. And, and this might be a, a great segue, Yuande, to just dive straight into telling our audiences about what you're currently working on next, and then maybe we can... Um, the others can follow okay so what i'm currently working on is um looking at um grade one teachers and their ideas of what literacy should look like at that stage it's part of that whole um research into transition transition from that infant basic school into grade one what does a child need to know how to do both socially and academically, in order to be successful. So that's one area of research. Um, and then also um, with a group of researchers, um, both in Jamaica and Trinidad, we're looking at um, technology-enhanced literacy practices. So looking at apps and seeing how we can use that to better improve um, the literacy of our children. Um, so I have about the two big strands I'm currently doing right now are all focused on um, global and comparative education work. So I have one study in which I'm the P principal investigator on um, 
in seven different countries focusing on Black women, academics, um, experiences at the intersections of their race, gender, and the state of coloniality between the former Caribbean colonies of five countries throughout the Caribbean, and then two of the former, two of the colonial empires, essentially. And so that's one massive uh, piece of work. I'm really happy I finished with the data collection. So I'm analyzing that now. And then the other piece of work that I'm really excited about is um, the evolving research that I've been doing on decolonizing qualitative approaches for and by the Caribbean. Um, and that has been taken off. And so really excited about that work as well. Okay. So I am looking at, so the first project, well, a few, the, the one that stands out right now, we're looking at developing social emotional skills. So we're doing a project on social emotional learning within the primary school system. We're working with teachers. So we started, we are, we are now at phase three. So we did phase one where we collected quantitative data from the teachers to see is social emotional learning um, strategies um, embedded in your curriculum? So we find out that first. Then we met the teachers, interview them to find out if so, how is it done? And from that, we are planning a project now to implement, to develop those skills within the school system. So working with teachers. So that is one. I'm also working on a paper well, project that looks at parental involvement, interestingly, and comparing it between urban and rural school. What differences exist? Is it, what are the mediating factors there? for parents to be involved at rural and urban school. And so, and of course, I'm always working on areas with aggression and violence, yeah. Great, so much exciting work to look forward to. Um, and if any of your work um, is published in um, a new academic press, please send us an email so that we can have conversations about um, uh, any of the work that you're working on. That all sounds really exciting. Um, so thank you so much for coming on to talk with me today. Um, we've been talking about Each One Teach One, Parental Involvement and Family Engagement in Jamaica's Education System, published by the University of the West Indies Press in 2022. Um, it's available online from bookshop.org, uh, as well as the University of West Indies Press and other sellers. I've been your host, Madden Gilhuli, and this has uh, been the New Books Network in Education. Um, and we hope to see you uh, again soon.